Welcome to the All About Setwork podcast. In this podcast, we talk about all things setwork. That can include training tips, a behind-the-scenes look at what your instructor or trial official may be going through, and much more. In this episode, we have a conversation with Michael McManus and Cara Schutzner regarding how it is that handlers may be able to deal with the idea of failure, how they may be able to come out of that, and whether or not failure is actually a real thing anyway. <laughs> Before we start diving into the podcast episode itself, let me do a very quick introduction of myself. My name is Diana Santos. I'm the owner and lead instructor for Setwork University, DogSport University, and Pet Dog U. These are online dog training platforms that are designed to provide high quality dog training instruction to as many people as possible. We're very fortunate to have them high basis worldwide. For Setwork University in particular, we provide online courses, seminars, webinars, and eBooks that are all designed to help you achieve your dog training goals. So whether that's just getting started in Setwork, looking to develop some more advanced skills, or if you are interested in trialing, we have a training solution for you. So now that you know a little bit more about me, let's dive into the podcast episode itself. So in this episode, we have the opportunity to speak with Michael McManus and Cara Schutzner about what it is that handlers can do, or what instructors may be able to advise their handlers to do, when they have experienced a quote-unquote failure, more often than not at a trial. And we also dive into whether or not failure is actually a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of other great stuff as well. So let's have a listen in on that very helpful and informative discussion. Basically, what I wanted to do with you both is have this little roundtable discussion of how we can help people better recover or learn or apply <laughs> from a failure, quote unquote, that they may have had from trial. So Michael, I know that you've already done a podcast with us about failure overall, which I thought was very good. So do you want to just start off with what you think people may be associating the word failure with a trial and where you think that, that maybe they could think about that differently? And then maybe we can go from there to talk about how they may be able to actually apply the lessons that they may have learned at a quote unquote failure at trial to actually improve. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that you really illustrated the key part of this. Failure is not a real thing. Failure is an abstract concept. And it, it almost ha has 100% to do with framing of things. And so p different people can go into the exact same scenario with the exact same outcome. And some will see it as a failure and some will see it as a success. And some won't see it as either because they didn't realize that they were playing some kind of zero-sum game where failure and success were even an option. And uh, that definitely comes to your own personality and understanding how that works and, and the other, the, the culture that you're a part of. I know there are some groups of people who uh, definitely have a very strong sense of what constitutes a failure or what constitutes a success. Um, so that's the first thing is, is what you're considering a failure actually a failure? Because usually when it comes to nose work trials, at least, that's a very complex set of things that happens. It, it would be really hard to write something off as a failure in totality. There are probably some things that we could consider failures and some things that we could uh, consider successes. And you, you choose what to focus on. Uh, I know for me personally, with my last MW1 as a good example, now I happened to title. But to me, if we had failed the trial, but we had gone into exteriors and not peed in the exteriors, that would have constituted a complete success for me. That would be total success. First MW1 out there, I would have been happy with that. Now, we got a title. Great, wonderful, but that really didn't even factor into my version of success because I'm not worried about the NW1 title. I'm worried about long stream, well, you know, way down the stream, what is my dog capable of doing later? So. so then from there, as an instructor, how do you help your students come up with a 
meaningful definition for failure for them and their dogs. So they don't go down the rabbit hole where basically everything that they do is a failure. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a couple things. One thing that I tell all of my students, and I got this from my dad was that you, the day after you, you can critique, but the day of, it doesn't matter how badly the competition or performance, because I, I, I grew up very musical. So um, if it was the day after a musical performance or something like that, the day of you celebrate, you pick something good, whatever, tri however trivial it is, you pick something good, you celebrate that. Then the day after, now we're going to tear it apart and rebuild everything. But in the moment, you're not able to really zone in on things that, that you can't build a plan yet because you're not thinking properly. You're too emotional in the moment. And you can choose to focus on whatever positive or negative emotions you want. So, so make it a rule that you're only going to focus on the positive emotions. And then tomorrow, when we are able to be more intellectual about it, you can intellectualize your failure and not emotionalize and catastrophize your failures. So there's that. And then the second thing is make a list of all the, and I wouldn't, you know, I tend not to frame it as a failure, but uh, frame it more as a list of things that you discovered that you need to work on. I mean, half the time I'm trialing, that's the purpose. I'm like, okay, where are my holes? I don't know. Is my dog ready for NW2? I don't know. The only way for me to know is to do an NW2 or to do a mock NW2. I don't care how it is. So I go and do an NW2 and I go, oh, wow, we need to work multiple hides, right? I, I, to me, that's not a failure. That was the goal of doing the NW2. And then I go back home, I train, and then I go, I wonder if we're ready for an NW2 again. And then we do another NW2. It, like the whole point of me is to, for me is to find holes. It's not like the success comes because I trained well, not because... I don't know. Uh, I went to a trial and I expected to win and then I didn't win. And I'm upset about that. And that's expectations. Another side of this whole thing that needs to be addressed probably at some point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So Cara, how would you help people who may have failed or, or again, in their definition of failed multiple times in getting a specific goal? So let's say that they weren't doing the breakdown that Michael was describing. Instead, their goal was merely the title. It, all the other stuff doesn't matter. I didn't get this title however many times. How are you helping those students say, okay, well, instead of you sitting here and wallowing about that and maybe blowing up your training work that may not even be part of the problem and thinking down about you and your dog, how do you help those people? <laughs> Try not to stay focused in the emotional state is what I would say. I, I'll say that, um, you know, I have a very reactive dog that I started in his work, um, Cooper, and we got our NW1 straight off the bat. And I didn't have any expectations except for like, kind of like Michael, let's not pee in exteriors or lose our, I, I can't say the technical word I would say, but you lose our crap if a noise happens, you know, and we got that one on our first bat. And then I had another dog who was like, got doggies, Alzheimer's. And everyone was like, she'll never do her ORT. She'll never pass an NW1. Like I had famous instructors telling me this. And I, like Michael said, you know, the only way you can tell is by going out there. And we went and did our NW1. And I mean, we passed the first time I was in shock. I mean, we got a lot of 30 second calls, but um, we passed. And if I would have let the failure of other people telling me what my dog and I was capable of doing, I could have went down the rabbit hole because I'm not normally emotional, but I am when it comes to my dogs. It's kind of like people and their children. So what I took from it and what my husband always helped me out too is like, 
take from what you think are your mistakes or your failures and just analyze them and learn from them and don't dwell on them. I know I was struggling at NW2 for a while and NW3 with Cooper for a while because it was like, whatever the last element was, we would fail. Like, and it wasn't my dog. It was mostly me because I got in my psyche that whatever the last element is, I had put the pressure on myself. So once I stopped doing that and just trusting in what I knew on my dog and like how he searched and everything, it kind of let that go. And I think with my students, cause I have a lot of students who feel like, oh my God, I let my dog down and all this stuff. I'm like your dog doesn't care. Your dog's very happy that they got to do something. I mean, think of the other dogs that are either in the backyard all the time with no enrichment activities or everything else. And, um, you know, training and trialing are two different things. And the trial stress, I think, is what a lot of people put on it. And as an instructor, I don't know, Michael does this, but I feel like sometimes all eyes are on me because I'm an instructor. So I should have like the best dog. And I actually love it when my students beat me because that means I'm a better teacher. <laughs> like, you know, like you want your students to win for <laughs> you. And I tell my students, I'm like, hey, if you beat me, I'm okay with that. If it's somebody else, no, because <laughs> I'm a very, Michael and I probably are both very competitive people. So, um, cause I grew up in a competitive household too, in um, piano recitals and competitions. So, um, totally get that, but you just have to kind of let that go. And if you get emotional, cause I mean, you're, some people are going to break down in tears. Lord knows I've cried like 27 hours driving back from California. Cause I didn't call a hide and, uh, <laughs> you know, I just dwelled on it. You have to just take that moment and be like, okay, why did I get into the sport? What do I love about it? And focus on the good things about it. So, I mean, I, you can't just dwell on it. I, I love Tad Lasso's um, equivalent of be a go fish, you know, like their memory is like 10 seconds. So forget it and move on. I think that that's kind of how we have to do it because if you dwell on it, you're just going to spiral down. If I get a no on the first run out, I'm just going to have fun. And it, it takes the stress out. And I've seen people who, because I judge a lot of these trials, that when they get a no, they just spiral out of control after that. And you should use that as a learning opportunity and go the next element. It's, it's a clean slate. Go out there and do the best you can. So jumping off of what you were just talking about, Cara, what do you think that people could do in training that could help them better prepare to apply some of the things that you were talking about? And Michael has covered this beautifully in his Conquering Competition Stress webinar, but as far as for what you've been doing with your students, how do you try to provide them the skills so they can actually do some of these things when they actually encounter it at a trial? Like being able to mentally, oh, look, I just drove six hours to go to this trial. I'm all stressed, whatever else. I go out and instead of saying search, I said alert at the start line and now we're done for the day. <laughs> How do you help those people in training so that they can at least laugh at that in the moment and then get through the rest of the day? A lot of people who know how I teach my class um, fear me when I'm a when I'm a CEO or judge because I do some I sometimes we do some stressors in in our instruction probably Michael too because I'll do something that I hope they never see at trial but that they'll have to understand just because I'm trying to emulate the stress that they were going to occur at trial which is hard to do and what I've tried to have my students do is when they feel like them or their dog needs a reset. There is nothing wrong with just taking your dog as long as you're not near an object or anything and just stroking, you know, in between the chest or petting them or whatever and taking a deep breath at that moment. I really find that your breathing influences your stress level. And I, when I went through the police academy, 
I would get stressed at the firing line and they really taught me how to do a lot of that technique. So I have some of my students do that. A lot of people feel like they need to restart at the start line. I'm like, no, you can restart anywhere in the search area. And um, I'll tell you as a professional handler, recently I was doing some, some certification and I got really stressed and my dog found a source and then we were struggling because I was just stressed. And so I actually took my dog back to the source that he found and the master trainer's like, you can't go back there. And I'm like, I need to go back there for myself to calm my nerves down. Cause I mean, it happens, it happens in the real world and everything. So I just try to teach them to just take a moment, take a deep breath. And if they forget where they are as you know, why they're touching their dog, there's the time to look up and say, okay, what have we not covered or what have I not covered? And if they need to go back to a high to do that with their dog, I, I tell them that's fine too. All it is is time. And I tell them not to worry about that clock because if you worry about time, you're going to, I feel like you set yourself up to fail. Like those people who are like, I have to get a placement ribbon. They put a lot of pressure on their self where if you just go with as a team, I've had lots of my students get placement ribbons that are like the slowest one in class, but the best one at the trial. That was perfect. Thank you. And now going off of that, Michael, and also picking up on what you were talking about with expectations, how can we as a community of professionals, instructors and so on, better help the little people out there who are listening to us, whether it be our own direct students, podcasts like this, whatever we may be writing or putting out into the universe, how can we help them make better expectations for what they and their dogs need to do within any given moment, whether that be in training or trialing, so that we kind of avoid this whole failure thing to begin with? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's actually a really complicated question in a lot of ways, because uh, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who are only testing. And uh, so they're setting themselves up for failure and for these expectations to drag them down into the depths of despair. It's just really a terrible situation. So if you're listening to this podcast, um, then I think one, you're special, that you're, you, you're already in kind of an elite group in a way, right? Of people who care about more than just testing your dog all the time. But, but if you're, if you find yourself, if you're doing a lot of blind searches, that's a, this is a, just a general example. It's, don't take it too seriously. But if you do a lot of blind searches, you're testing your dog a lot. So what's the rest uh, ratio? How much are you training? So you tested, what are you testing? You're testing for holes. Did you find a hole? If you found a hole, then you should patch that hole before you test again. Okay. And I don't see a lot of people doing that. Uh, I see them just continuing to test almost like they're hoping the hole will disappear magically with enough tests, you know, that eventually it'll just go away like some random luck. It's not random luck. It's dedicated hard work. So you test in order to find a hole, you find a hole, you patch it. And you patch it by returning back to foundation, building everything up from scratch. And, and I seriously mean it. You don't fix the hole by setting up the hole again. You go all the way back to the foundation where there is no hole because it's flat. That's what a foundation is, flat. And then you build back up. Okay. That's what I would recommend. And if you don't know how far back you need to go, go all the way back. So You won't hurt yourself by going all the way back. Okay. And, that, and that's what I wanted to ask you is for the people who are already in their minds, they're beyond these baby stages that you're talking about. I'm already doing yada, yada, yada. I've been doing this for however long, maybe I'm dog 10 now. <laughs> Unbeknownst to them, they've had the same issue throughout all these various dogs 
dogs one through nine carry them through that problem. But now dog 10 doesn't have whatever magical elements those other nine dogs did. So now this issue that's been there the whole time is rearing its ugly head. How do you help those people who may have been doing set work, nose work for however long come to terms with, yeah, you may actually have to go, which I think was a brilliant way of putting it, this flat surface, because there's an enormous problem there. How do you help them get to the point where they're able to do that? Because yeah. that's hard. I've invested 10 years into this. And now you're telling me I got to go quote unquote back to stage one. Are you out of your mind? How do you help those people? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so part of that has to do with your personality of, of, uh, of the instructor. So I'm going to frame things obviously from my personality and how I help my students uh, when I'm encountering someone who I'm telling needs to reapproach foundation. So one thing I do is that I model that behavior as much as I can. I tend to in my classes, if I can, I almost always run one of my dogs. And when I'm running one of my, and I know not every instructor can do this and not every instructor wants to do it because it's a lot of pressure to perform in front of your students. And there's already a lot of pressure on you as an instructor, like Carl was saying earlier about being in trial as an instructor and having people that that's its own podcast, probably that we should talk about at some point, because I'm sure there's a lot of trainers. I've talked to trainers actually who contacted me who were too afraid to even trial their dogs. They didn't have any titles. They were too afraid because they were afraid if they failed, what people would think. And that's a tragedy because they're missing out an opportunity to have fun with their dog, but also they're missing out opportunities to learn and help their students better because actually all the failures that I have as a, as a competitor is what makes me the trainer that I am. Um, so uh, anyways, uh, that's a little off topic, but so if I have a student, so I model it. So I'm always the person. So I'll let, you know, let's say I set up a setup in my, uh, search area and a people, a couple people run it, and then I'm I'm gonna run my dog next. And I grab someone, hey, here's some treats, go pair the hides for my dog. Okay. And almost without fail, I have someone in the class go, Why are you pairing for your dog? Your dog's at the NW3 level or whatever it is, doesn't matter. Why are you pairing? Your dog's good. It's like, no, my dog's good because I pair. And you guys don't want to pair. That's fine. I like taking home the ribbons for myself. You know, like, honestly, I put it, I, I frame it competitively because I'm a competitive person. Like, hey, you want to earn placement ribbons with a 12-year-old Husky in summer? Because I do, and I, I have done that. And part of how I do that is I pair the crap out of everything. And I pair and I do foundation drills almost exclusively. I almost never do, quote unquote, advanced searches with my dog. I never, the, the times I do them is in trial. Right. That's where it's time for all that training to show itself off. Uh, I really think that people should see nose work. I, there's a lot of different terminology people use, but you're, in my opinion, you're showing a dog. You're showing what your dog can do. Um, you're not, you shouldn't be training them in the ring, so to speak. And I think a lot of people go into the search hoping to like finagle their dog through it. It's like, no, you should be showing what your dog can do to this test and, and you as a handler. But anyways, um, so yeah, uh, that's one approach. Another approach is to, to help people understand the process in its completion. So, so here's a hole. We've discovered a hole. You haven't done anything wrong. I don't really mean this, but this is the way I would communicate to a student. You haven't wasted the last five years of training with your dog. You haven't wasted it. You've done a whole bunch of really great work with your dog. Okay. We need to go back to something you should have done five years ago, but you're doing it now. 
doesn't matter when you do it. We're just going to do it now. Okay. It's a hole. We're going to patch it. That's all. It's going to, it's going to be fast. You don't, you won't even know that it's over when it's over. And, and most people are okay with that when they understand, I'm not telling you you've wasted five years. I'm just telling you we got to do something now that we should have done five years ago. And this is very easy to fall into a trap, especially if you have a really good dog. And like Diana said, if you have multiple dogs, it's easy to overlook holes. But if you have a really, really talented dog, naturally talented dog, uh, then you, without even realizing it, will cut corners and skip ahead because the dog can do it. You won't even know there's a hole until it's a big hole. You haven't ruined the dog. The dog hasn't suddenly developed a problem. The problem's always been there. You just didn't notice because the dog was so naturally talented that you didn't, you didn't notice. And, and you should be very happy that you have such a talented dog. Now go back and fix the hole. That's all. It, it, don't, don't make a big deal about it. Just go train your dog. <laughs> oh, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> it, but it is easy. That's, it's that simple. It really is. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I'm just sure there's lots of people who are saying that like curled up in the fetal position, completely <laughs> disagreeing with both of us. Um, but it, it is very true. And I think that that leads to a, a good follow-up question for Cara. What do you do then for the person who has taken in that advice and they're actually really applying it They're They fix that particular issue, right? But now they know that there may have been something for a long period of time they struggle with, let's say long line handling skills, where they knew from dogs one through nine, they were really hindering the dogs doing well because of their own mechanical skills. You've been working with this person and they have actually improved, but in the back of their mind, they are still convinced that they are just a failure at doing this long leash handling skills. What do you do for someone who may have that kind of hang up where they well, have a long history of, I struggle with this, but now it actually is improving. How do you help them? Well, I tell them there's a pot shop next door. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> That's actually how I started out. You got to have some humor in this. I mean, you have to have humor in this. And I think I think that's where we always focus on the negative. And I'm going to table back on Michael's holes there. I have learned, like I went into the professional world to fix some things that I felt was lacking as me as an instructor. And I've, and the professional handlers can help you in some ways, but they don't run the Chihuahua or the Husky or anything like that. So there's a hole in their training when they can converse to nose work, a lot of them, because they don't know how to deal with the dog that shuts down or whatever, because they would just wash it, right? So I have students that feel that way too about their leash handling. And I, I show them video because usually we have video of our training of when they begin and when they are now. And I even show them video of when I have begun 10 years ago and how I was riding my dog's butt. And, you know, people would tell to me, you know, you need a bumper sticker on his tail or whatever. And now where we are now, and he's, he's retired. So I'm training a new one. That's a totally different breed and everything like little small terrier hound mix, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes with her. Cause we all make mistakes in our training, no matter how you train or where you train or whatever, you're always going to have a hole somewhere. And the reason for this is not because of the dog, it's because of us. And you know, you have to go back to foundation, no matter what style, who you train with, whatever, when you discover that, just go back to the basics pairing. You know, I've even gone back, back, back on some dogs to food, just straight food. I remember Ron, I love Ron. He would always say it's not remedial and, and true trainers will not be like, oh, it's not like you're going back to kindergarten. I mean, if you had, if you were struggling with something in real life, 
you wouldn't like keep pounding your head against the wall for that. You would go back to where you understood it and then build from there. And so I think with people that I show them video evidence, that's the best way. And if you've never videotaped any of your training and you train alone, cause sometimes I trained alone for many years, go get a, a stand to put your phone on, go walk the area, record that, and then go set hides in that area. So you can see, because that's the only way you can learn sometimes is by videoing. Cause you'll see stuff that, and have somebody else watch it. Like for seven years, I didn't know that Cooper's tail dropped a certain degree for seven years until my husband walked by and was watching this video. And he goes, oh, did you notice this? I'm like, you could tell me this seven years ago because I never asked him to watch videos with me, you know? So um, that's what I would say is definitely use the video evidence. And we're human, we make mistakes. People say dog make mistakes. I think dogs are very honest. I think if they make a mistake in training, it's because of us. I really do. I really think if we had an up device with a voice box, our dogs would be talking to us all the time. Like you stupid human idiot is right. You know, like, but you could just got to let it go and use video of that. And if you're really struggling with the deep dark circle or the drain, as I call it of um, self failure, you need to make a list of why you got into the sport of nose work or scent work, or why are you doing this? Why? You need to figure out what your why was. And I mean, everyone gets burned out. Everyone goes through these things. You have to figure out what was your why. And sometimes taking a break from trialing and just focusing on training. And I, I don't ever try to push my students to do that. I will kind of tell them about my own journey about taking a break sometimes, because sometimes that's the hardest thing to tell a student or somebody is like, Hey, maybe you need to just chill out for the summer and not enter anything or a couple of months and just focus on training and having fun with your dog that actually resets their mentality. I think. I think that's excellent. So Michael, did you want to maybe uh, jump on that as far as that last piece of helping people understand that maybe it may not be such a great idea to be trialing like multiple venues every single weekend, all month long, you know, 52 weeks a year. (laughs) Do you maybe want to talk about that real quick? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think uh, we have to think about how the what are the incentives because people ultimately why are people trialing? Kara mentioned that earlier. Now, I, th- I think that people are trialing because one, they want to spend time with their dogs. That's good. I'm all on board with that. One, they want to spend time with their friends. There's a large community, and nose work is incredibly welcoming as far as dog sports go yeah there's clicks and things like that but it you can go and you can talk to people and you hang out in the parking lot it's a great communal experience these are all great things i think because people are competitive and they want to win things and they want to perform well uh, and that, that's okay that's good too i'm all i'm a competitive person so uh, you're not going to get arguments against competition from me but you are going to get competitions of competing poorly or being a bad sport that's for sure so maybe one of the things we should be talking about is how do we create opportunities for people to do that and not just throw the dog under the bus by continually putting in them situations where they're in over their heads. Like what it's, it's sad like that. There aren't events that, you know, more events that people could go to where the dog is benefiting from it as much as the handler is. And, you know, one of the things that I do with my own dogs is I do a lot of workshops. Um, Workshops are great. You get to put the same amount of stress on yourself as a handler, but your support system and everyone, the workshop presenter, everyone's a support system for the dog. So the dog gets to grow as opposed to a trial where 
it was a great support system for me. If I fail, I go out back out to the car and everyone's like, oh, that's too bad. You'll get it next time. And the dog is thrown under the bus in the meantime. Uh, so yeah, I think, uh, I think you, you should really think about whether trials are beneficial and what, at what frequency. I trial very, very rarely. Um, and when I trial, I always make sure I have a plan to break, rest, and train my dog before the next trial. I, I'm very protective of my dogs. And I think trial environment is actually not a good environment for most dogs. So to jump off of that, to give people some ideas of what they may be able to do as far as creating custom solutions for what you're talking about, of where we can have all of those incentives for the people that are important because they're the ones that are choosing in their free time to do set work and those work with their dogs anyway. They don't have the incentive, they're just not going to do it, and that would be bad. So what could we do as far as giving people ideas of ways that they can still have the incentive for them, but like you said, not throwing the dog under the bus? So we'll start with Michael and then Carr if you have any ideas. I think, like I said, workshops and special events that uh, occupy the same time slots that try, like, that's a difficult thing. Some people are so invested in the trial system that going to a trial and burning their dog out for a rhythm, a ribbon is just more attractive to them than going and doing a group training event. That's too bad. Um, I think we need to find ways to make these training events more inviting, more fun, more communal. One of the things that we do in our classes is, you know, we have a, a bottle of champagne, especially after a competition, you know, it's like, like, it, not everything has to be a lecture hall, it can be, yes, we're going to learn something, but let's also enjoy our time and our company and all this stuff. So think about ways that you can really incentivize that structure. And another thing is, as an instructor, if you're an instructor listening to this, and your students are competing, especially if your students are competing regularly, they do not need to come back to your class and do more blind searches. They don't need more of that. I've talked to so many people who that's the class they go to is just blind searches. That's it. It's, it's terrible. If you're an instructor and you're doing this, I'm sorry, you're part of the problem. You, you need to be the support system for this dog who's going to do that this weekend and going to do it next weekend and going to do it the next weekend. And when you get them that one day in the middle of the week, you need to be setting up drills that are going to prepare this dog to recover this dog. You need to be doing that. And it's like that style, that structure of class needs to be more commonplace, it needs to be more accessible to people so that people can do that and get, get feedback, get instruction and have that support system for the dog. Perfect. Thank you. Ms. Carr, did you have any thoughts for what people may be able to do, either people practicing on their own, if they're working with friends, or what instructors may do in order to do this incentive, incentivizing that we're talking about of, you know, helping people want to still play the game with their dogs, but not like Michael was saying, throwing the dog under the bus, which may happen with their trialing weekend after weekend after weekend. Uh, there's a couple of things I do in my class. We, we play games. We play for money. We play for alcohol we play for doggy treats i mean we play for stupid little ribbons that i get off of amazon or whatever they say like you're awesome <laughs> but there's things you can do as a group like i agree with michael like we have a trial coming up this weekend right i tell my students after wednesday they're not doing any more nose work with their dogs because they're gonna burn themselves out and um the first time my students heard that from me they thought i was nuts and i was like no because you're mentally going to burn yourself out. Just take the, go hiking. I don't care until Saturday and Sunday. Do something fun. Don't even put a 10 out. As a group, like my students will get together and we'll actually watch each other and we'll say who found which hide first. We'll play that game. 
Um, and yeah, we pair probably two thirds out of all our hides. And if they don't want to pair, I'm like, oh, good thing you're not pairing and I'm pairing. Like I really have a, a you know, you're not pairing, I'm pairing. And so we'll do stuff like that. Um, we'll also play like closest to the pin is a new one that I've learned from my professional work. And um, they're getting ready to play one of those where um, I'm going to have an inaccessible hide and whichever dog can get closest to that hide is going to win something. The team is going to win something. So like a human treat and a dog treat. And they'll just put, we'll put like a little washer on it when they alert. And then we'll mark the distance of who's closest to the inaccessible object or whatever object I have it on. Um, we also like, I like to play um, the plethora of hides. I know, Michael, if you've done this, but I have a big training facility. Sometimes I can get like a warehouse and they can watch each other because it's good. And I give them like some ridiculous amount of time of like seven or eight minutes. And I put like 20 to 30 hides out. <laughs> and, uh, we keep track and they can work it again. And I guarantee you, you know, the dog's not going to get all of them, but the second time they come in, the dog gets most of them because they know they left them behind. And um, we play for money on that one. They kind of like that one because, you know, it's, it's something new that they get to see. And then um, around Christmas time, I like to play the human nose work game to get the humans to feel what it's like sometimes. So I'll get a bunch of um, McCormick's or those, you know, like vanilla extract and all those weird coffee smells and brandy. And I'll put them on red solar cups because humans aren't good with their nose. So they have to go and I'll put blank red solar cups up. So they have like four minutes. And as a team, they have to go find the odor in the red solar cup and identify the odor. And the team that's closest gets to pick the, we do Christmas gifts or holiday gifts. So they get to pick which set of gifts to take first. Cause some of them are really good. And some of them are like, you know, stuff you get at the dollar store. And uh, the, the handlers actually like that one. I haven't done it in a while. So I think cause of COVID last year. So this year we're definitely going to do that one because they realize their dog works better than they do smelling things. And at some point they all think it all smells like alcohol, you know? So, but I mean, it's a good, it's a good game for the humans to understand kind of what, you know, because they feel the pressure as a team because I make them do it in teams and that actually puts more pressure on them if they were doing it by themselves, you know, because they have their team, they don't want to let their team down. So I'm trying to emulate that emotional failure st stress because I think as humans, there's no way of getting, I mean, there's some humans that can get rid of it. My husband's pretty good at it, but I'm not. So. <laughs> So to wrap up this really great conversation, you both have offered so much great information for the people who are listening. Michael, did you have any final thoughts about this whole idea of if someone listens to this whole podcast and they're still like, well, you know, I don't know about yada, yada. What would you want their final thought to be in listening to this podcast about either failure, expectations, how they can better set their dog up for success, set themselves up for success? What's the final thing that if this person is still on the, the fence about listening to all this that you want them to walk away with? Let's say you've been struggling with a problem for a couple of years or, or just a year, whatever it is. Let's say you've got an NW1 and you just can't pass it. You've tried multiple times and that's probably means you've been having this problem for several years. What does it cost you to take one month and try it my way? Just take one month, pair everything, no blind searches for the whole month, pair every foundation drills, high energy, you praise the heck out of your dog when they find it, right? Like really sincerely get excited about it. Um, pick up hides after the dog finds them so that when the dog doesn't go, when the dog goes back to the hide, you don't go, no, find another one. I hate that, it drives me crazy. Um, so pick up hides so you don't fight with your dog, right? Remove all that conflict, 
Okay, go back to basics one month and see if your dog doesn't show a huge improvement very quickly. Uh, what's the what's the risk? Try it. Awesome. I think that's a fantastic piece of suggestion. Thank you. Ms. Carr, did you have any final thoughts for someone who may be in that headspace of being like, ah, I don't know what I should do? So um, I was in that headspace for a while and I let somebody else try on my dog and they actually got placement ribbons and they passed. So, so uh, that's an eye opener. You know? um, but I, I agree. What does it cost? It doesn't cost anything to do that. And I, Michael said something about you found that one. Oh my God, that's you. That's one of my, it, it kills me. It kills me when people say that. I, I just want to go beat them. Um, and I'm not a violent person, really. There's nothing wrong with going back to basics. Basics can fix all your problems. And for those, I have students who have come to me that did, like Michael does a month, which I think is great um, for basics, or maybe he goes longer on a month. But I've had people that have started their fifth dog, let's say, or something like that. And they have done it one way, one week, and one way, a different week, and then like inconsistency. So I would say, whatever basics you started with, or if you didn't have a basics, find somebody's basics and stick with it for a, a, a while. Um, a month is good. I think even a little bit longer, sometimes six to eight weeks is even better, especially because consistency is the key. And if you're having something that's broke and you keep doing the same thing, that's called insanity. So you have to break that cycle. And there is nothing, nothing wrong with pairing, with toys, with food. If you're afraid you're going to screw up your dog, you're not. It's letting go of your ego and realizing that, hey, I need to be a better partner to the one that's actually doing the work. So, Perfect. Yeah. Do you mind if I quickly, based on what Cara said, to amend what I'm saying? I'm not yes. saying <laughs> do this for a month and then your problems will be solved. I'm saying do it for a month so you can see the progress so that you're going to be convinced to do it for the rest of your dog's career and not be so afraid that you've you've gone back to the basics and now you're stuck there. No, this is what allows you to do the advanced stuff. This is what's going to allow you to get those advanced titles that you really want. This is the way I've taken my dogs to the advanced levels. It's by doing basics almost exclusively for them. And, and I want to say some. I want to say something too about reward and motivation. If you're seeing slowness, if you think it's slowness or something, change a freaking reward. Have dogs have preference. I mean, um, you know, I see a lot of issues just by changing out the reward. I had a new student who's on her second dog and does work with a Great Dane. And she's, you know, her first dog loves food. Her Great Dane is a toy, toy lover. Like, like I want to tug like a Malinois toy lover. And you get excited about it too. So if you don't know your dog's preferences, there's ways to test that. You can Google dog preferences. I tell my students put three different foods out, see which dog likes. And you can do it a hundred times. You can do it with toys. Dogs do have preferences. And I'm telling you, when I see dogs out in the heat, like the Husky, if he's working the heat, you better have some darn good stuff because you're getting dogs to do things that normally don't like heat or certain things. And, you know, find that motivator, that top stuff. My have a dog that will sell his soul to the devil for oranges. And when we go to a nose work trial, guess what his reward is? Cause he hates containers, oranges, judge doesn't care. So, um, figure out what they like and you maybe you'll, it may surprise you. So 
Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you both. This was an amazing podcast. And I hope that people who are listening really appreciate the amount of wonderful information these two experienced people just gave you. <laughs> if you ever have an opportunity of working with either Cara or Michael through Network University, we have video reviews where you actually be able to submit a video to either Michael or Cara to review and provide you feedback. We also have a way for you to schedule virtual consultations. You can do that as well. These are very talented people who would be able to help you and your dog. So please do that. <laughs> So as you can see from this episode, Michael McManus and Cara Schutzner are not only experienced and talented instructors, they are also a wealth of information and knowledge. As I mentioned in the episode itself, if you have an opportunity to work with Michael or Cara, whether it be in person, going to one of their workshops, attending one of their webinars, or working with them virtually, please do. <laughs> they are very, very good. So we'll make sure in the podcast replay page that we have links for the other podcasts that Michael had done with us, where he was discussing failure, his conquering competition stress webinar, which is very, very good. And we'll also make sure that we have links for how you may be able to work with both Michael or Cara virtually with their video review services, as well as their virtual consultations. But we also want to hear from you. What are some other topics that you may be interested in, in us covering in these roundtable-like discussions? We'll be posting this episode up on our Setwork University Facebook page, so you'd be more than welcome to add any suggestions that you may have there or post any questions or comments that you may have about this episode. But as always, we really want to thank you all for listening. We have over 34,000 downloads so far with only a very few number of episodes, which is amazing. <laughs> So thank you all for your continued support. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Happy training. We look forward to seeing you soon.